Hey, everybody. Welcome into the back room. I'm Andy Ostroy. We have a very exciting conversation for you today with Gretchen Carlson. First, I just want to say thank you for listening and tuning in. Uh, we do appreciate it, and we'd love to hear your comments. If you want, send us an email at backroomandy at gmail.com, and uh, maybe we'll read a few next time we're on the air. So, Gretchen Carlson, she is an acclaimed journalist, New York Times bestselling author, speaker, and advocate for women's rights in the workplace. She went public in 2016 with harassment claims against then-Fox News chairman and CEO Roger Ailes, paving the way for the Me Too movement. Her story's been told in the movie Bombshell and the Showtime miniseries The Loudest Voice. Gretchen spent over 30 years as a journalist and has hosted the Saturday edition of CBS's The Early Show, Fox and Friends, and The Real Story with Gretchen Carlson. She is co-founder of Lift Our Voices, a nonprofit organization fighting to eradicate forced arbitration clauses and non-disclosure agreements in workplace contracts that keep toxic workplace issues silent. And she's dedicated to helping create safe, welcoming, and harassment-free environments in workplaces all across the world. Gretchen, welcome into the back room. Thanks for having me, Andy. So one of the things we like to do in the back room is to let people get a sense of who the people we're talking to are in addition to what they do. So I'd love to spend a few moments just talking, going back in time a little and, and peeling back the onion a bit. Like childhood, you were born in and raised in Minnesota and your hometown of Anoka is the Halloween capital of the world. I didn't know that until I wow. did some homework on you. Did a deep you did dive. your research and you actually pronounced it correctly. That's a miracle. One time, when I was on David Letterman years and years ago, he called it in. And, and I never let him forget that. But but no, it is, it's Anoka. It's about 14 miles north of Minneapolis. But when I was growing up there, it was definitely more rural than it is today. I grew up on the Mississippi River. And so, you know, I baited my own hooks and fished from when I was four years old on. Mm -hmm. I was a boy, you know, I, I love the outdoors. And, you know, I just, I, I, I loved athletics, but I also happened to love music. And I started playing the violin when I was six years old. Right. And that became my thing in my life. I mm -hmm. was really, really serious about it. So mm -hmm. yeah, it was a great upbringing. I always, you know, I always hearken back to the Midwest, Midwestern sensibilities that I learned from, from growing up there. Not that I'd want to necessarily move back with their winters, but, you know, I bring my kids there on purpose at least once a year so that they can see how I grew up in a little bit more of a laid back, simpler world is sometimes mm -hmm. good for them. I, I was in Minnesota. The first time I was in Minnesota, it was the coldest day I had ever experienced in my life. I mean, New York can get cold, but we don't experience like 50 degree below zero kind of cold. And it was <laughs> no matter how many hats or things I had on, I just I, I couldn't get warm. But I wanted to ask, what, what, yeah. so what makes what makes it the Halloween Halloween capital of of the world? Like, is that just like a self proclaimed thing, or are they are they actually no. really good at Halloween? Well, so also when I was on Letterman and I was a young pup, I did not know the answer to that, which was very upsetting to my town. So I definitely know what it, what it is now. Congress actually deemed my hometown the Halloween capital of the world because I guess back in the in the 30s or 40s, the eve of Halloween used to be like a raucous time for teens to create problems. And so my town came up with familial programs for people to get involved in on the eve of Halloween so that that mischief wouldn't happen. And so Congress said, you are the Halloween capital of the world for shaping things up. One time when I, I did an interview when I got to the national scene in television and I on Halloween, I interviewed the mayor of my hometown of Anoka and the mayor of Salem, Massachusetts. And they, they got into quite a tiff over who was really the Halloween capital of the world. But we had a lot of fun with it. And you know, growing up, it was, it was like the claim to fame that that's where we lived. We had a huge parade and, of course, tons of candy and good costumes. So it was great for tourism, I, I suppose, around <laughs> It Well, it was. Um, it did, but hysterically, one time when all of my siblings and I were watching the dating game on TV when we were kids, and the couple, the prize for them at the end was to go to the Halloween capital of the world, and we cracked up because wow. we were like, Big oh my budget. gosh, we love, I know we love our hometown, but do they know this is a small town? I mean, How would that even, gonna... that's so random that they would, that Bob Eubanks would have uncovered yeah. that one. Um, and I is, know, is but... this true? I read that your one of your childhood babysitters was Michelle Bachman. 
Yeah, yeah. At the wow. time, she, I know she was like, she was in her first couple years of college, I think. And so, yeah, there was some program where they, you know, if to make extra money on the side for going to school, they you could sign up if you wanted a babysitter. I just remember that she had this amazing long hair that went past her butt. And me, I could never grow my hair out past. It was so thin, it never got to any length. So I like admired her hair. She also let me get away with stuff that my mom didn't want me to get away with. Like I was a chubby kid. So my mom pretty much was always trying to get me to eat better. <laughs> and so one thing I loved was grape soda. And so the minute that, that my mom would leave, Michelle would let me drink grape soda. So talk you know, about Halloween. I mean, it, I, I know I'm not going to use the W or I will, which uh, I'm sorry. Did I say that? That's crazy. <laughs> but you turned out great. So clearly she didn't have any kind of negative in influence on you except for the, the grape juice, perhaps. Listen, we weren't talking politics when I was a kid, nor was she. No, so she I, didn't really talk much politics when she was in Congress either. So it's that was <laughs> part of her, part of her legacy, I guess. And you mentioned the violin. I mean, you went to Juilliard. I mean, that's pretty hardcore. You weren't just like playing. My daughter played the cello, but she played the cello. You played the violin. <laughs> yes, it was really my career as a child. Mm. Um, I I practiced four hours a day. It was. You know, it was pretty crazy. I never expected that to happen, nor did my parents. It just sort of clicked right away. And, and there was this talent that they felt like they had to try to do something with. The interesting thing, though, about Juilliard is I never went to the pre-college program as, as a, you know, a middle schooler or a high schooler like some kids do, because my parents didn't want me to move to New York City by myself. They wanted me to try and have the best of both worlds where I could be really great at my music, but still live in Minnesota and travel to New York on occasion to take lessons with the top people in the world. I also went to this summer music camp in Aspen, which I know it was wonderful, but it wasn't so great when I was a 10 year old and I was all there by myself and there weren't any other young kids, but I went there for seven summers and really did intense training with the Juilliard teachers as well. So it was kind of this good balance where I still had a normal upbringing. But I burned out when I was 17. I just realized that I, I really enjoyed too many other things in life. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't going to be able to, to do any of those things. I really, if I wanted to be the famous concert artist on a violin that I dreamed of, I'd have to give up everything else. And I just wasn't willing to do that. So, mm -hmm. You sure you know, it wasn't like friend, Michelle, Michelle Bachman's influence saying like, come on, that's, a, that's like a liberal woke instrument. You got to stop playing that. <laughs> Not at all. It was actually very mature on my end that I, from hanging around with older people who were musicians for all those years, I saw, in my mind, I saw that a lot of them were not happy. Mm -hmm. At least I didn't perceive them as happy. And and by the way, I was really serious about my academics as well. And like I did a bunch of theater. And so I, I just wanted to be more well-rounded. So I really focused in college on my academics. I ended up at Stanford. I went to study at Oxford and it was really wonderful time to broaden my horizons mm -hmm. from academia point of view. Do you still play the violin at all? I don't. It's a, it's a, it's, it's not, it's really interesting when you have excelled at something like that at such a young age, it's not like riding a bike. Like for me to try to pick it back up now, I, I would be horrible. And it would take a long time for me to get back in shape. And it's, it's hard mentally when you've been so competitive with something to play it like crap. <laughs> I mean, you know, it'd be like, you know, right. the best, it'd be Tom Brady not being able to throw a pass, you know? It's just hard mentally. Although my father would be very happy if I went back to it. I, I will say that I, I still see every note in my head. I still can, my fingers know every single note in every concerto I ever played. Hmm. They're all memory in my head and I did pass along my musical gift to my two children who play the piano um, mm -hmm. and so you know I get my joy of music by by listening to them and listening to others music is amazing I, I've been playing drums most of my adult life and I just recently started taking guitar lessons and there's such dif different instruments one is very primal and but I, and one comes very natural to me and you can identify with the you know, the, the dexterity that's required, the, the, you know, to be able to move, maneuver your fingers around to get from one chord to the other. And it's, it, that doesn't come naturally to me. So I have a, a fondness for people who play stringed instruments and, and, and do the, do it really, really well. Yeah. The one thing I'll add to that is on guitar, you have frets. So you actually have places to put your fingers. 
on on the violin and the cello and the viola, there are no frets. So it's mm. it's actually even more tiny. You know, it's this tiny little part of the pad of your finger that has to be perfect to be in tune. And it can just be a, a slight like milligram of movement, and it's and it's wrong. So you're right. The dexterity is just minute and Listen, what I learned from from my music, other than the appreciation of it, is it taught me immense discipline because the perfection that you had to have in these competitions performance and the hours it took to get there. I have used those skills in every other thing that I've done in my life. It really it set me up to learn how to live life. So even though I don't play the violin anymore or perform it it's still with me in mm, Interesting. For all you parents out there, get your kids playing in a, an instrument. 100%. So you mentioned Stanford and Oxford. You're a smart person. You are really smart. And, and, and you were a beauty pageant woman. You miss America, for Pete's sake. I know. It's so weird. Those two things are so usually associated in the same sense. Well, like Stanford, I- Oxford, Miss America. Well, Miss America gets a bad rap for that. 50% of the 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 points mm-hmm. that you accrue to get to that point are based on talent. That's how I got into the whole this whole thing. And it really it funnels back to giving up the violin. My parents were pretty upset about that. And so my mom claims that she got a brochure in the mail on the Miss America pageant when I was studying at Oxford. And she read that there were all these points on talent. And she called me up. I'll never forget because I, you know, back then, you know, we we're still on hardline phones and she, she called me up and, and said, I found something for you to do this summer. And I was like, what? And she's like, I got this brochure in the mail and I think you can do this. And so you should enter the first, you know, tier of the local competition. I was like, are you high? Like, <laughs> I mean, first of all, I, you know, I'm from Minnesota. It's not known as a pageant state. I'm short. I'm five foot three. I'm, I grew up a tomboy. I've never even watched Miss America on TV. And by the way, I play the classical violin, which has never won. <laughs> and she's like, I don't care. I think you can do it. And so my mom has been this incredible influence in my life, the driving force behind every goal that I've attained. The role reversal in my family was really interesting. My dad was also highly motivated, but much more gentle and humble. And I learned those skills from him and sense of humor and my mom i learned this intense drive i mean isn't it crazy and you 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 mentioned all, all the things that you felt would be an impediment to becoming <laughs> a beauty pageant winner and i agree with you and you know on some level that's just the nature of those those things that but mom saw you differently right she saw mom. you as miss america and you became well, Miss because, America. It's crazy. Yeah, I know. But she saw me as becoming the first classical violinist to be Miss America. And on top of that, that I would continue to play the violin, which is what she wanted me to do. So she was very much a strategist. And I did I did have to pick it back up mm. because obviously I had to win the talent portion. You know, the other thing was that all of the money that you win is scholarship money. So mm-hmm. I paid my last year of Stanford wow. University with the money I won. And my parents had four kids in college. So, you know, there, there is an amazing benefit. And that's really why a lot of these young women do the system is because it helps them pay for their entire mm-hmm. college career. Cases. So, but for me, yeah, my, my life has worked in mysterious ways. I always say that I have done tremendous amounts of twists and turns. And actually I'm a good inspiration, I hope for people who are struggling right now in their life not knowing what they want to do or they're they you know they're at a crossroads or even for young people i think we put so much pressure on them to know exactly what they want to be and my life is a testament to the fact that you have no idea what you're going to be i mean some in some cases you do but i thought i was going to be a violinist then i thought i was going to be a lawyer then who knew i was going to be miss america and then i was going to be a journalist and right. then i was going to be you know one of the poster people for harassment in the workplace right. like what? Yeah, no, look, so, I, life takes you in strange directions. I, I just love that your 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 mom, you, you were in, in at Stanford and Oxford, and your mom said being a beauty pageant. That would be like my Jewish mother saying, don't go to medical school. Be a stand-up comic. <laughs> when does I that know. ever happen? <laughs> I, know. I know. But, okay, so I want to ask you, before we get into more meaty, newsy stuff, all that boring stuff, you talked about inspirations a second ago. Who were your 
inspirations in the public eye when you were a younger person, a, a kid, a, a teenager, a young adult? Like, who did you look at in the sphere, you know, as, as part of your sphere of influence, if you will? Yeah, I mean, I think on the TV side, obviously, the, the amazing women who paved the way, Barbara Walters, mm -hmm. Diane Sawyer, mm -hmm. uh, when I actually was starting to think about a journalism career. But, but really, I remember as a young kid looking at famous violinists who who were women. Also, I would say that I have memories of Margaret Thatcher because she became mm. the first prime min female prime minister of Great Britain. And look, I, I'm a big, huge believer in the fact that seeing is believing. And, and if we don't put these kinds of role models out there, especially for our young women, how in the hell would they ever know to try and attain it? Right. You know, I, I really actually think that Great Britain has had three female prime ministers because they had a queen. And now you're going to say, what? And I'm going to say, because... The queen used to hold so much more power than they do today as just a figurehead. I mean, if you if you watch The Crown and see Queen Elizabeth was making wartime decisions over Churchill. Mm. And, you know, it, it was this unbelievable power for a 26-year-old woman. And even though it's become much less now and it's just simply a monarchy, I think the Brits were used to seeing a woman in power. They were, you know, used to respecting her immensely. And... That, that just made the next step of having a female leader as prime minister not that big of a deal. It's unbelievable that here in America we haven't been able to do that. No, it's I mean, infuriating made... that we still are talking about, oh, are we going to shatter the glass ceiling when it's it's been yeah. shattered in much of the Western world for the last 50 years. I mean, Golda Meir yeah. in Israel back in the 60s exactly. and Indira Gandhi. I mean, the list goes on and on from New Zealand. And, and the, you know, I mean, it's just... I don't know. It's <clears throat> I look, but I also thought we'd never have in my lifetime a black president. So I do think that right. ceiling in this country will will be, will be shattered soon. So I know you can't talk about your situation, and and quite honestly, that's not of interest to me. Everybody knows that story, and you you, it's not something you want to or can talk about for the most part in that context. But I do want to ask you about the important stuff, which I know is important to you. The reason you can't talk about it is because you have this ironclad NDA. So why don't you talk a little bit about, not so much about Lift Our Voices, because I, I do want to get into that in a, in a few minutes in a, in a meaty way, but just in a broader sense, why, what is an, tell, tell our listeners what an NDA is and why is it so awful? Why are those silencing, silencing type mechanisms in the workplace so detrimental to employees? Yeah, well, first, I would love to own my own truth and talk about it. You know, no, very scant research has been done on the mental anguish that NDAs put on people for not even being being able to own their own life experience. I mean, that's freaking crazy mm -hmm. when you think about it. Like, we take that away from people. For what? And we also take their jobs away, usually, too. So we push them out, and then we make them never have their voice again, and we're all okay with that, except I'm not. So... An NDA is a non-disclosure agreement. A lot of people are more familiar with this than the other thing I'm fighting called forced arbitration. Mm -hmm. But non-disclosures, one-third of all Americans sign NDAs on their first day of work. Mm -hmm. So that's millions of people. And I'm here to tell you that 99.9% .9 of them have no idea what they're signing. Mm -hmm. They think they're signing an NDA that means that they, if they work for Coke, they can't take the recipe over to Pepsi. Right. Right. They think that they're protecting trade secrets, which I'm all in favor of. But and the important thing is that ignorance is not an excuse mm -hmm. down the road to breach that NDA. Correct. Exactly. Well, because companies have gotten incredibly smart about how to kind of hide the real impact of these silencing mechanisms and people just don't understand them. So when they start a new job, they don't ask. Do you have this expansive NDA? Do you have a forced arbitration clause in your contract? Like they ask, what's your paternity leave? What's my vacation time? What are my health benefits? I'm trying to get people to become aware so that they start to ask those questions. So people have no idea they're signing this stuff. So what that means is for one third of all Americans, and it can be not only in contracts, it can be in handbooks, it can be in an email you click on unknowingly, it can be in the fine print somewhere else. A lot of fast food workers are subject to these and they don't necessarily have an employment contract. So it affects millions of people and you don't realize it until something bad happens. Mm -hmm. And then you go to try to talk about it and you can't. Mm -hmm. So for instance, in my situation at Fox, 
I couldn't warn other people. Mm -hmm. I couldn't go around to other women there and say, hey, is this same thing happening to you? Because I was already muzzled before the bad thing happened to me. Now, does that sound just? No, it does not. So that that's what I'm trying to change. But then NDAs can also pop up in other times of, of employment, which makes them so hard to battle. They can pop up, let's say that, um, let's say you don't have an NDA when you signed on the first day of work, but you go to complain to HR about not being treated correctly, and they put a piece of paper in front of you and say, hey, we'll give you an extra month off and two weeks extra pay if you sign this, mm. right? So an NDA can pop up then. The other NDA that I have with Fox and actually three parties, because they try to entangle you so you can never get out of it. So mine's with Fox News, the parent company of Fox News, and also the deceased Roger Ailes, except it passes on to his wife and son. Hmm. That's how crazy. That's crazy. Isn't that crazy? So my NDA, the second one, was upon resolution. And these are incredibly common in the workplace where somebody goes to complain about something. Immediately, they, you know, HR tries to figure out how to push them out because suddenly they're the problem, even though they've done nothing wrong except have courage. And if they, if they don't already have an NDA, they're going to get one really swiftly. And the old school way of handling this stuff is, oh, let's just pay them off a little bit and they'll sign an NDA and no one will ever know about it. And this is how this vicious cycle has continued for decades now because we're protecting the bad people. We push out the good people, usually women and people of color, which by every study show that those are the exact people we want to retain to increase our bottom line. And, and so it's this vicious cycle that, that nobody was really aware of until this whole movement started after my story in, in 2016. So these are the things that I'm that I'm fighting against and trying to educate people at the same time because people do not know what they have mm -hmm. signed. Now your your NDA was signed as part of the the settlement of your case. Yeah. And, well, I had one on my first day of employment, so right. I couldn't warn people about anything. And then yes, my NDA. And at the time, Andy, you know, look, I had no way of knowing that when I jumped off the cliff on July 6, 2016, that I was going to inadvertently ignite an international movement. Mm -hmm. Like, how would I have known that? I thought I was going to be sitting at home crying my eyes out because I'd been fired from my top-notch job after a 30-year career in journalism. And so, number one, I didn't know that. Number two, even more surprising is, I didn't realize I was going to be the advocate to start changing these secrecy policies and that we would actually be in a place almost seven years later where we're actually getting rid of NDAs. Like, how could I have known that? And so my lawyers kind of handled it the way it had always been handled, which was, you know, you have to sign an NDA because that's the way this works. You'll mm -hmm. never be able to talk about it and then you'll go on your merry way. But well, two things they did get that were very progressive for the time. They got a public apology mm -hmm. from Fox News and the parent company, which never had happened before. And by the way, that's the only thing that people want because it's validating and it means you're not crazy. Mm -hmm. And the number two thing is I got, they carved out the ability for me to talk about these issues broadly. And I have taken full advantage of that in trying to make workplaces safer. So in 2016, you, you had a pivotal moment where it involved a minister and then in a related fashion, your grandfather. Tell, tell us about that. Yeah. Well, thank you for, for bringing it up. So really it started with my parents. You know, being from Minnesota, <laughs> that thing about people being nice is so true. And like when you're in big traffic, you know, people just like wave you in. They don't try to cut you off, off like in New York. Wait, we don't and do the same that thing in New is York. True about Not at all. Oh, come on. I've, I've lived in New York for 25 years. Brooklyn you know, would do that, but not a, not a Minnesota. Okay. All right. So we'll get into a borough fight. But <laughs> the thing is, also in Minnesota, it's it's like you don't really jump off the cliff with this kind of a high profile lawsuit. Right. You try to you try to work things out and make sure everyone's nice to each other. So my parents were really hesitant about the whole thing. But about six months before I did it, they finally got on a call with me. You know, my mom especially was well aware of what was happening to me. And they both were very emotional with me. And they said that they finally had come to the decision that this was my only choice. And so that was that was a pivotal point for me because I believe that no matter how old you are in life, that you always want the approval of your parents. And I'm still blessed to have them in my life. And that was really crucial to me. 
And then my children, my children were my paramount concern, but the reason that I was doing this, my husband. And then, yes, my grandfather was a minister and I found out from my lawyers that he had passed away by then, but I found out that I could go to my minister and, and say what I was about to do. And so I did that and it was very emotional. She you know, spent a lot of time with me. And at the end, she said to me, your grandfather is here. He is looking after you. And he says that he believes in what you're going to do and it's the right thing. Mm -hmm. And that was just an incredible emotional time for me. And it really was the, the final reason that I decided to, to jump off. And I, I hope he was proud of me then. And I, I'm certainly sure that he's been proud of my work since. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm sure as millions of people are, because it did launch this incredible movement to make people aware in the workplace, but also in the, in the, in the celebrity workplace, if you will, the media, the TV world, the film industry, you know, from Harvey Weinstein down to Charlie Rose. And so I want, one of the things I wanted to ask you with, with regard to what you experienced at Fox, I mean, we know about like situations with Matt Lauer at NBC, like is the, in your experience or in your awareness, is it the same everywhere or was like Fox a special place of this kind of behavior? Well, listen, harassment and sexual misconduct in the workplace and discrimination for race, age, disability, LGBTQ plus status that I think it's everywhere. Um, I mean, one I mean, in, the media, in the media in particular is re really the one well, I'm asking about. But no, really, I mean, it's okay. Well, in the media, but then I, I do want to give the caveat because this is true. It is everywhere. I mean, I did a whole documentary to, to make that point that the every woman story, it wasn't just famous journalists mm -hmm. and, and and Hollywood actresses. This this happened in a, at fast food restaurants and in our police well, force and fire departments right. and military. And this is everywhere. Mm -hmm. uh, but in the media, look, I mean, was it more rampant at Fox? I, probably. But it, I think what the fascinating thing about this is, is that maybe people weren't surprised that it was happening at Fox. People were more surprised when they started hearing about Charlie Rose at CBS and Matt Lauer at NBC. But I think it proves the point of what I've always said, which is people that you think you know, you don't. Mm -hmm. People people that you welcomed into your home for morning TV and thought of as a trusted friend, you don't know what the hell they're doing behind closed doors. Right. And it's the same thing. It's the same thing that we when you know when when unfortunately you have like, like a murder in a neighborhood. And I can say this as a journalist because I've done four gazillion of these interviews. You know, the other neighbors always say, well, we never thought it would happen here. Right. right? <laughs> it's the same thing about this stuff. You know, you you don't know who people are underneath. And this problem of sexual misconduct at work is a power trip. So these are people that, you know, have something wrong with within their own soul about how they feel they have to treat other people to make themselves feel better. Mm -hmm. That would be my analysis of it. I'm not a psychiatrist, but it, it really all is about power. And when I would walk the halls of Congress to try and pass my legislation, which I was successful in last year, I would say to members of Congress, no matter what party they were in, they don't give a shit what party you're in when they decide to harass or assault you, right? They don't like ask you first, are you a Republican, an independent or a Democrat? Mm -hmm. No. It's about power. And so back to your question, was it more rampant at Fox? I don't, maybe. I mean, I, I also would say that when predators are at the top, when they are the CEOs or the president, you tend to have more toxicity because that spreads down to the people that they hire. They tend to hire more people like themselves, right? And because it's coming from the top, this kind of behavior, other people sort of feel like then they can press the envelope with their own behavior because mm -hmm. it's accepted. Right. And so before you know it, you know, you have this incredibly toxic environment that has been normalized. That that would be how I would describe what was going on. Mm -hmm. What do you think of the Abby Grossberg? I'll call it a bombshell, but it's not quite a bombshell. I want to do get to bombshell too in a second. But the, the news that broke this week, the, this Fox producer worked for Maria Bartiromo as well as somebody else. I forget the, who that was. Tucker Carlson. Tucker Carlson, of course. Yeah, I try to forget Tucker no Carlson. No relation to me. No relation to me. I was going to ask you me. that, actually. 
No God, not no. even God, like no God, eighth no. cousin or anything like that. <laughs> no, listen, in in the Scandinavian culture, especially in Minnesota, Carlson's the biggest name in the phone book. Okay? Oh wow, interesting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I was always actually side note very upset that my name I felt was so common. But when I went to my first journalism job in Richmond, Virginia. And the first time I cold called to get an interview and they asked me what my name was, I said, Gretchen Carlson. And they said, could you spell that? And I was like, oh, my God, <laughs> wow. I, I've made it to the big time where my name isn't so common. But, but yes, uh, Carlson is uh, God willing. I don't I'm not even related to him. Tenth cousin. But the, yeah, that's who she worked for there. So what she had, you know, she's claimed there was she's witnessed and experienced and or experienced personally uh, sexual harassment, sexism, anti-Semitism, all the things that we we've heard about, you know, through your story and other other people over the years. What do you make of her particular situation and what do you think is going to come of it? Well, number one, I believe her. Mm -hmm. Two, I'm not surprised. Number three, if Fox News has changed its culture and shaped up as they say that they have, then why are they still holding me subject to my NDA? Right. Why are they? I've demanded to be released from it, as have other women mm -hmm. who followed, followed me after I came and and they have not responded. You see, if they respond, then they're actually acknowledging that they received the demand. So they just don't respond. But they apologized. The they apologized. How do you apologize for something which is a uh, <laughs> an, an acceptance of behavior that was wrong, but then say, but we still don't want you to talk about it. Exactly. But I think the, the biggest part of that is if they hadn't said that they've changed so much, then it would make more sense because mm -hmm. you would just think it was the same place. But they try and go out there and say that they have made this massive shift. You know, I mean, this is where me being able to be out of my NDA would be helpful mm -hmm. in explaining people, you know, that might still be there, you know, and that's, I mean, 100% why they don't want to let me out of my NDA. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I keep coming back to if it's changed, and according to Abby, it hasn't. But if it has, then then you should allow all of these women to be able to speak. Now, you, were part, you were part of the, or, or you initiated the, the effort to get, I, I remember during the debates, I forget what year it was, but with Bloomberg, like you were part of that movement to get these guys on camera to say, we will get rid of, NDAs. And surprisingly, m m many of them didn't want to. And there were even some people on the left who were opposed to like Bernie Sanders. Like, I mean, yeah. it's kind of surprising that it just seems so ingrained as part of the culture, corporate yeah. culture, the protective mechanisms around the corporate culture that they, they just still don't want to. I mean, someone like Michael Bloomberg, how does he not say, you bet your ass I'm going to get rid of them tomorrow? Well, because, no, because, well, first of all, they're rampant in the political sphere so, and, and obviously in workplaces, but rampant with political campaigns. And understandably, you should sign an NDA that you shouldn't be able to go out there and talk about polling information and that kind of stuff, but not about bad behavior or rapes that happen on the road. But listen, Mike Bloomberg has run a humongous company, and, and this is just boilerplate language now. And by the way, while he was running for office, we were talking to women who had worked underneath him and not necessarily about him, but other people at the company that had been forced into into NDAs. So it wasn't surprising to me that that he didn't he didn't sign on. What we did at, at Lift Our Voices, we had just formed our nonprofit Lift Our Voices as we were launching into these mm -hmm. big debate stages where we had so many candidates. And we went to every single candidate and asked them to join our pledge to to want to get rid of NDAs. Mm -hmm. And this proves my point about how apolitical this issue is. Because as you said, there were four candidates at that time when there were 20 candidates who refused to join our pledge. Trump, no surprise, mm -hmm. Bernie Sanders, Amy Klobuchar, and Mike Bloomberg. So, you know, what happened then was we wrote an op-ed in the Des Moines Register the morning of that big debate and we implored the moderators to ask questions about our issues. And they actually did. Mm. And again, we, you know, and then Elizabeth Warren completely eviscerated him. You know, look, again, we are apolitical too. We don't, it's not like we're out there cheering because that happened to Mike Bloomberg. He may have been a fantastic president, but 
you know, look, you 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 got to have your ducks in a row when you're That's running. Right. For you office. make your bed, you sleep in it. He's a big boy. So I do. Let's talk about Lift Our Voices because it is an incredible organization, and the work you're doing is amazing. And you know, when you talked a little before about you know where life has taken you, you know, I, I have a similar experience in my life. Things have happened, as you know, that I I've never thought would ever happen to me, like a spouse being murdered and. I started a foundation and blah, blah, blah. So I always think about like, what would I want on my tombstone? What is my legacy, right? So I think a huge chunk of your legacy is going to be what you're doing with Lift Our Voices and and how that's, you know, a continuation of earth-shattering movement that began seven years ago to change the workplace. So talk a little bit about that and the work you're doing and the legislation that's been passed and why all this is so damn important. It is, and and thank you for for saying that. So in a nutshell, what inspired me was that after my story, I started hearing from thousands of other people in our country. And I was just blown away by the fact that there was an epidemic of misconduct sexually in the workplace still. But there was also an epidemic of silencing people who had the courage to come forward. And 100% of the people who reached out to me, when they had come forward, they had been forced into secrecy, either in arbitration or with an NDA or both. And the, the startling thing to me was that they never, ever worked in their chosen profession ever again. Mm. And I was like, that is criminal. And I decided to roll up my sleeves and, and, and get to work on it. Look, there, there were a lot of people in DC who were already passionate about these issues. They're kind of wonky, right? They're hard to wrap your head around. And so it was kind of like the perfect storm where I came in to work with them and I brought this sort of celebrity status where I could you know, my case got so much attention that I could I could start talking about forced arbitration and NDAs and try to make the general public have a better understanding of it and also have politicians pay more attention to it because I had interviewed most of them mm -hmm. over my career. So I knew them. So I started walking the halls of Congress. And the first bill that we introduced was to get rid of forced arbitration for sexual misconduct in the workplace. So real simply, what is that? In your workplace contract, by next year, 84% of all of us, 84% of all of us will have a forced arbitration clause in our workplace contract. That means you cannot go to court. You're giving up your Seventh Amendment night right when you sign on the dotted line on the very first day of work, and you have no idea what the hell you're signing. You don't know what that means. I didn't understand that. And when I got together with my lawyers, they said, you have a forced arbitration clause, you're screwed. And I said, what are you talking about? I've got all this stuff. And they're like, doesn't matter. Because when you go to forced arbitration, the deck's stacked against you from the beginning. First of all, the company picks the arbitrator for, for you in almost every case. They've had a lot of cases. So these arbitrators come back to do good business with the company because they found in favor of the company before, not the employee, right? An employee hardly ever wins in arbitration, 2% of the time. There are no appeals, so it's just done. There's no rule of law. So all these cases for the last 40 years of racial discrimination and sexual misconduct and every hu other human right violation, they've been going to this secret chamber and we have no precedent that hmm. we're setting for any of these cases. We have lost 40 years of case law. And so you know how important that is when you go to court, you're always referring back to another case. And the biggest problem with arbitration is that it's a secret process. So in most cases, people think they're doing the right thing. They go to complain to HR. HR is not your friend. If, if you have a forced arbitration clause, they go, nobody's ever going to hear about this. They send you over into arbitration where you get screwed. You probably won't even win anything. You never work again. And the predator gets to stay on the job because nobody knows about mm. That's how this vicious cycle has continued. And I would argue that how we got to this place and this explosion of using this device for unknowingly employees goes all the way back to Anita Hill. Because in 1991, when she testified in front of Congress and we started talking about sexual harassment in the workplace, in our culture, companies did two things. They said to themselves, oh my gosh, we have to start educating our employees about this. So they started incorporating training. And they also said to themselves, there's no way in hell we can have an Anita Hill <laughs> company. How right. do we cover it up? And that's how forced arbitration exploded. Back then, 2% of all people had forced arbitration clauses. As I said, by next year, 
84% of us will. So my law gets rid of that for sexual misconduct. It's arguably the biggest labor law change in the last 100 years. Mm. You're right, this will be my legacy, but I was far from being done because the other evil is non-disclosure agreements. Mm -hmm. And just a mere eight months later, I was able to also spearhead and champion the Speak Out Act, which eradicates pre-dispute NDAs for sexual misconduct. So those NDAs I was talking to you about that one third of all Americans sign on the first day of work, if you have signed one of those, and you're currently experiencing sexual misconduct, and you haven't yet brought any kind of legal action, you own your voice now. Thank you. Mm. Thank you to the speaker. That's out. amazing. So, you know, and look, we're doing a ton of work in the states. Lift Our Voices is very active. Some states that are much more progressive have gotten rid of NDAs completely. So that would be New Jersey, California, and Washington State. We've introduced legislation in New York State. And that also has great impact because companies now can't use NDAs at all in those states. And so are they gonna have a two-tiered system for their employees? So if you live in Iowa, you can be silenced, but if you live in California, you can't. So we've seen big, huge global companies like Microsoft, Apple, and Google take out NDAs for everyone mm. as a result of that state action. So we're having massive impact at Lift Our Voices, not only on the federal level, but also at the, the state level. Mm -hmm. And you have a mantra, it's, Courage is contagious, right? You've you've <laughs> said that, and what does that mean to you, and why is that so important? Yeah, the first thing I think of is my two children when you say that because they were my tantamount concern through all of this. They were only in middle school when I came forward, and I didn't want them to be made fun of or pointed out or get any attention that they didn't want. And I I saw my courage transfer to them pretty quickly, and. And so I realized that what I did was contagious mm -hmm. and it was really a wonderful thing for my children. Just two quick stories. My, my daughter had been facing some bullies at school and a couple months after my story, she came home and she said, mom, I, I finally found the courage to tell this one that and the other one this. And she said, mom, I did it because I saw you do it. Mm -hmm. And wow, you know. That's beautiful. That, that's huge, right? Even if it's just that one thing. My son also earned that courage through through being contagious when he saw me on, a, on CNN one night talking about this and another woman had said that once every 73 seconds a woman is assaulted in our country which is awful and he asked me if that was true and I said I'm, I'm so sorry to tell you that's true and he said to me mom as a young man I want to help fix that mm -hmm. and I was like whoa like he was 12 so this courage has transferred to my children. And even if that was all, it made what I did worth it. But I know that the courage has been so much more vast, right? Like it turned into this international movement. And this is one kind of thing that you wanna catch. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you wanna catch courage. And we wanna keep speaking up because the one thing we've learned is that by talking about these issues, that's how we solve them. Mm -hmm. Well, you also say that real men stand up for women. Like well, that's what a men, real yes. man is. That, a real man is, is someone. Yeah. Yeah. That's the definition in my mind. In fact, when I was writing my book, Be Fierce, after my story, I never intended to dedicate an entire chapter to men who defend. Mm -hmm. But in my research, and, and frankly, all the men that started reaching out to me as well, or even walking the streets of New York City in my own unscientific study, more men than women stopped me mm. and they said thank you thank you because i for my wife for my mother mm -hmm. for my daughters i was like whoa men are a huge part of this equation and most men are good yeah we don't all suck yes. i know and, and i want to make sure that i talk about that mm -hmm. and i say that in every speech that i do because and i and i dedicated a chapter to what these good things that men were doing because men are an essential part of the equation of fixing this. You, you as men still rule the world, mm -hmm. okay? Still run most of the Fortune 5,000 companies. You still make most of the, the decisions in the workplace. So we need you. We need you to help us. And, and the biggest thing is to get rid of these silencing policies. Please get rid of these silencing policies. Number two, raise women and people of color and other protected classes up into the organization, promote them, put them in high powerful positions. If you have the power to put them on boards, put them there. Because the one thing that we eradicate when we raise these people up 
we eradicate this toxic behavior because mm -hmm. we have more people of diverse backgrounds making the decisions. Mm -hmm. And it sounds so simple, but we ain't doing it. Okay. No, and I've heard, I've heard you, I've heard you say, and, uh, and I'm glad you say this because I, I, I believe it and I say it all the time myself, but like you refer to yourself as just having the balls to do what you did. And that's what it requires. It requires balls. I mean, you look at people like whether it's a Nancy Pelosi on the left or a Liz Cheney on the right, look at what women have done in the last several years in this country, for this country, by having the balls to do what they've done, when the men around them have not only not done anything about it, but have been a huge part of the problem. So you're 100% right. I, I tweet all the time that women should control the world. I've said that a million times because... Not that 100% of women would be amazing because there's bad apples in every gender and every situation, but, but all you gotta do is look around the world and you just just think about it logically and rationally, all that toxic masculinity, all that chest thumping, all that shit that Trump does and his followers <laughs> worship that big strong man. I mean, look at the, the memes they put together. They take this, this old fat guy and they put like Stallone's body on him and 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 because their image of, of, it's all toxic masculinity, like how a man should be and a man should act. And so I do think if women were at the, at the controls, the world would be a much better place. And, and you're exactly right about the Trump stuff, but, and the way in which we raise our boys to not be like that. That is the, that's the second biggest lesson that I've learned through this process is we gotta get to them young. We have, cause we form our opinions as young people, right around puberty or before, and they're really hard to break. Once, once we tell boys to go out and skin their knees and not cry and not show emotion, right. we tell girls to be perfect and play with dolls, and and not you know don't don't rub the, the fence the wrong way or whatever the phrase is, right? We need to parent the same way, and especially for for young boys to respect women, so that they don't form those opinions really hard to break once they get into into the workplace. So it's, it, you know, I always say fixing this is a tangled web. It's not just laws. It's not just the way we raise kids. It's not just putting more women in high positions. It's not just education. It's all of these things coming together to to try and, and make the world better. Well, it's like you said before with your own children, the, the importance of, you know, role models at home, you know, not just teaching children the right way to behave, but also leading by, and I think that's a part of what's missing today is that so many people, whether it's, you know, two income families, everybody's busy and working and trying to just pay the bills that there's not a lot of emphasis on sitting kids down and saying, this is how you, this is how you behave in the world, right? You put, you know, the golden rule, like do unto others, you know, treat people with kindness and respect. We're in such a awful, I mean, you're, you're doing what you're doing right now which is an amazing work, but also at, at a time when it seems like the incivility in our country is the worst it's ever been. It's such a great point, Andy. I get asked that question all the time. Well, the number one question I used to get is, how can Trump still be president? That, that was the number <laughs> one question. With, with all of the allegations about sexual misconduct, that's, that's you know, why people would ask me that. Mm -hmm. uh, but but I, also, I also believe in, in what you just said, that there's this massive disconnect between the rise of Trump and bringing back all this old shit that we thought we had gotten past, racism, anti-Semitism, right? The, the, what you just said, the machismo, like men are great. And juxtaposing that to the immense success that Lift Our Voices has had in empowering and lifting up women. And eventually we hope to do the same for people of color and every other disenfranchised class. It is this, unbelievable thing that I think we'll talk about in history books. How could these both of these things be going on at the same time? Mm -hmm. And you know, a lot of people have said, well, it's because of Trump that that's fueled the, the, the movement for women and you know Black Lives Matter, et cetera, to, to really gain steam. Could be. It could just also be that we're so fractured as a nation that we're going on these divergent paths and it's really hard to to bring a lot of us together it's why getting these bipartisan bills passed into law last year was 
so monumental. Mm -hmm. But what I tried to do was get to the human core and the human spirit of people instead of politics. And human rights violations should not be political. They just shouldn't. Right. So look, we're moving on to other things. We're already talking at the federal level about our next bill for, mm -hmm. for forced arbitration. You know, we're moving, we're moving on regardless of the whole Trump side of stuff. Every day I have to wake up and be full steam ahead. Mm -hmm. In this work, I have to be optimistic and I have to keep pushing. And that's what we plan to do. Well, keep doing it. Keep fighting the good fight. It's really very important. I have three daughters, and so your work means an awful lot to me. I also have a son who, having grown up with, he has four sisters total, but uh, he's very respectful of women, and it's it's so important, the work you're doing. So thank you for that, and thank you. You've been generous, very generous with your time. I do hope you'll come back and yeah. talk about uh, the next piece of legislation, perhaps, and or anything else you want to talk about. But uh, thanks again for coming on. Thanks so much. If people want to learn more about my movement, that they can just go to liftourvoices.org or GretchenCarlson.com. Great. Thanks again. Thanks for having me. That's episode 56. If you like what you've been hearing, and even if you don't, let us know. We appreciate the feedback. You can leave us a message at 845-307-7446. Email us at backroomandy at gmail.com or tweet to me at Andy Ostroy. And when you listen, please take a quick moment to rate and review. It's very helpful. I want to thank my co-producer, engineer, and editor, Maddie Rosenberg, associate producer, Jen Hamoud, Cricket Langell for our artwork, Andy Hollander for our kick-ass music, Patricia Wynn and the Epicurean for the Backroom Studio, and a big thank you again to our guest, Gretchen Carlson. So keep your eyes on Washington, Hollywood, and your own backyards, and we hope you'll join us again next time. Have a great week. <laughs>